please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to continue our series called The Marriage and Divorce Test. And this is the third message in the series. And if you're joining us today for the very first time, our church records the messages, and you're welcome to go on to our website. We also made sure that we included the full outline. So the outline is packed. You, you'll have the outline if you go back to listen to the previous messages as well. The reason that you also want to do that is that we're progressively working our way through this passage, having already covered verses 1 through 5 in the first message in what was called the compromised view of marriage and divorce. The Pharisees not only misunderstood, but they also misapplied the law so that certificates of divorce could be obtained. And the majority of the Pharisees led the rest of Israel to believe that divorces could be granted for virtually any reason at all. Jesus confirmed that this happened due to their spiritual heart disease mentioned in verse 5. And that not only led to their compromised view of marriage, but it also led to their compromised and well-accepted practice of divorce. This led to our Lord's response in verses 6 through 9, which we call the challenging view, or God's view of marriage. Jesus gave them a precise rebuke using the foundational prescription to marriage as designed by God in the book of Genesis. From the very beginning, God is the one who designed marriage, and Jesus wanted them to see this clearly. First, he covered God's participants in marriage that emphasized the equality of man and woman in the covenantal relationship. And they're, they're, they were empowering men to be the only ones who had the ability to divorce and disregard their wives for any reason, which completely contradicted the equality God designed for marriage. Added to their breach of marital participation was their practice of polygamy and having multiple wives, which was yet another indication of their spiritual heart disease, further reflecting their compromised view of marriage. The second aspect you'll see in your outline of our Lord's rebuke featured God's pattern for marriage and the binding allegiance that a husband was to have to his wife after leaving and cleaving from parental control. It was a marital bond that superseded allegiance to parents. Yet we learn that this also exposed their hard-heartedness. They would have never dreamed of disposing of their parental relationships, yet they did so with their wives without batting an eye. The third aspect of our Lord's rebuke featured God's purpose for marriage. And here we spent the bulk of our time looking at the covenant of marriage and what the marital bond ultimately reflects. A covenant we learned last week reflects God's commitment to his people and his pe people's commitment to their God. And we briefly viewed the covenant of marriage through the lens of the Old Testament as Israel would have understood it. The metaphor and imagery of marriage has always been woven deeply into the fabric of the covenantal relationship between God and his people. Marital oneness and unity was to mirror forth this covenantal relationship. And we saw glimpses of this as we looked at Ezekiel 16 and Isaiah chapter 54. And this picture remains true in the New Testament as well. We briefly surveyed some New Testament texts before setting our focus on Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, 
which provides a complete picture of marriage's purpose to reflect or mirror forth Christ and his relationship to the church. Christ's example of love and submission in the gospel reflects the love and submission of the church. Husbands and wives are to reflect Christ and the church as they fulfill their respective roles according to God's design for marriage. In both instances, the marital bond reflected in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is designed and intended to reflect a permanent and binding commitment to the marital relationship. And this is exactly why it's called a covenant. It mirrored forth the old covenant relationship between God and Israel then, and it mirrors forth the new covenant relationship between Christ and the church now. It is why people express their covenant of marriage by sharing vows before God, their spouse-to-be, and witnesses. They vow or covenant to love and cherish for better or worse in sickness and in health, vowing their love and fidelity to each other so long as both shall live. There's a, a permanent, lasting aspect that is reflected in the old covenant relationship that is also reflected in the new covenant relationship that is to be mirrored forth in the beauty of marriage. And then, you know, unless your heart's insensitive or, or, or disregards that, that's, that's not something that we can take lightly. And so it should come to us, it's no surprise, that when something threatens that bond, when something threatens that covenant, that God has some strong words to say about it. Jesus finished his rebuke last week by saying, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man separate. Don't let your parents separate it, right? Show allegiance to your wife. Don't let an adulterer or somebody outside of your marriage separate it. Let no man separate it. What God has joined together. We need to see that. God is the authority in marriage. He decides who is married and who is not. He decides who, if anyone, can be divorced. Jesus' affirmation of marriage rocked the Jewish culture to the core. And we still have three jaw-dropping verses to consider at the end of this passage. How did Jesus' challenge to the disciples' understanding of divorce then impact them? How will, how will uh, your understanding of divorce and Jesus' challenge to us impact you today? Is a divorced person permitted to remarry? In what ways might our divorce-plagued culture tempt you and I to compromise our view? Let's tackle the text together and read Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 12 together before focusing on the final three verses. This is what it says, starting in verse 2. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the very beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Verses 10 through 12, and this is our focus today. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Well, let's pray together and ask God to bless our study of his word again. Our Lord and our God, we come to you yet again for understanding. We are hungry sheep, hungry, hungry sheep who in many ways don't even know what we don't know. And yet you have instructed us to pray. You want us to seek you. You want us to seek your word. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can illuminate our understanding so that we can be adequately equipped to, to be your servants in our divorce-dominated culture. Please protect us from a compromised view of marriage. We ask for your protection for uh, from a compromised view of divorce that is contrary to your scriptures. Permeate our hearts with clarity and conviction. Nail down the corresponding truths in our hearts that will help us to stand firmly against the errors of this world while keeping the door open to minister the gospel and the instruction of your word that we all so desperately need. We ask this in our bridegroom's name. Amen. Amen. Well, you'll notice in the second sub-point in your outline, under the second point, it says Jesus challenges our understanding of divorce as we zero in on these final three verses. And as the sub-points indicate, we're going to see three truths. First, God's view of divorce will cause many to question it. Second, God's view of divorce warns against compounding sin in remarriage. And third, God's view of divorce includes two concessions outside of Mark's gospel. Let's get started with the first truth. God's view of divorce causes many to question it. After the Lord's rebuke and affirmation of the covenant of marriage, this caused his disciples to ask questions. Look again at verse 10. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. Obviously, what they saw taking place in the Jewish culture didn't align with what Jesus just featured. They're going, Jesus, we got some questions for you. And it's fairly easy for us to anticipate what some of these questions might be after the teaching that we heard last week. Jesus, are you saying that there's equality in marriage? Jesus, are you saying that there's supposed to be monogamy in marriage? Are you saying that polygamy goes against God's design? Jesus, are you saying that marriage is supposed to be a permanent, lifelong bond between husband and wife? Jesus, are you saying that in the majority of instances that God is against divorce? And the answer to these questions is a resounding yes. And the answer to these questions today is still a resounding yes. Certainly it would cause many to question, even today. Pastor John MacArthur in his book titled 
the divorce dilemma, says that, quote, there are fundamentally only four dominant views about divorce. And I actually put these on a PowerPoint, and um, we're going to pull these up because there is no space in your outline in the bulletin. So you'll have to jot these down on the side. First, secular society's view, and sadly even many professing Christians MacArthur says, allow divorce and remarriage anytime for anybody for anything. In the historical evangelical mainstream, and then he qualifies this with a parenthetical statement, that community of Christians who profess to believe the Bible implicitly take its standard seriously and look to Christ alone for salvation. That view has never been the dominant one. Instead, Conservative pastors, Bible commentators, and theologians are generally divided among three other views. Here's the second view. Some would insist that biblically there is to be no divorce at all for anybody, not for any reason or under any circumstances. Third, no remarriage. Others teach that divorce under certain circumstances is permissible, but no remarriage is allowed ever at any time for anybody, for any reason. And fourth, others say that biblically, both divorce and remarriage are possible, but only under certain circumstances. And so this provides you with a snapshot of the the view in general of divorce in, in our culture and in the church. Dr. MacArthur finishes the quote by asking, which option is truly biblical, which serves as the premise for his entire book, The Divorce Dilemma. What he does next is to look closely at what Jesus said, which is what we're doing, so that we can also answer the question biblically. The first truth that we must all recognize is that God's view on divorce will cause many to question it. Even your own heart might be challenged by what Jesus says. We know for certain that the Pharisees' hearts were challenged. The Pharisees lost sight of the fact that God hates divorce. They lost sight of the fact of the seriousness of the covenant of marriage. Like many people today, they developed their own standards for divorce and remarriage. But even worse, the Pharisees presented them to people as God's standard. Jesus' words may seem challenging, perhaps even a little unrealistic to some. But that only reveals that we have been desensitized to the sin and the evil of our culture. Our culture, if we're just being straight up, our culture is exactly the same as it was in Jesus' day. People get divorced for any reason at all. The, the, The famous line, you can talk to any attorney, all you have to do is jot down irreconcilable differences, right? Which is the equivalent of any, the same thing as for any reason at all. And when they start to question God's view, one way to help them understand the seriousness of divorce is to question them to see if they fully understand God's view of divorce. Turn to Malachi chapter 2 with me so you can see firsthand. And it's easy to find. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So it's right before Matthew. Okay, so make, just make sure that you're in Malachi chapter 2, not Matthew chapter 2. You'll, you'll be able to track much better. The first two chapters of Malachi are addressing Israel's spiritual leaders who were committing grievous sins and leading others to do the same by profaning the priesthood, marrying foreign wives, and divorcing 
their own wives. In Malachi 2, starting in verse 13, God says this through his prophet. This is another thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Why, why, Lord? Why won't you receive my offering? Listen to what he says. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Again, here we see that men were divorcing their wives, and God saw it as dealing treacherously for them as they did this for any reason at all. And we talked about even the protection for women. It, it dealt treacherously for them because their, their, their lives were potentially in jeopardy. Then God continues, verse 15. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Yes, there were those who were guided by the Holy Spirit who remained faithful to their wives and did not divorce them. But then notice what the Lord says in verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. That word hate literally means hate. Okay? It's hate. It's clear. God hates divorce. He hates it. Pastor Jack Hughes says, divorce is always the consequence of one or more people refusing to submit to God. It leads to other sins, usually to adultery. Men suffer, women suffer, children suffer, families and societies suffer when God's plan for marriage is dishonored. Notice there are no qualifications, no exceptions. God hates all divorce. Marriage was designed to be a permanent covenant, end quote. If a person continues to question God's high view of marriage, you can also point them to the examples of what was commanded if someone was unfaithful through adultery in their marriage. We know what, what happened in the Old Testament, right? It was a capital offense. Deuteronomy 22.22 and Leviticus 20.10 provided the law to Israel. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That would raise the bar just a little bit on our culture, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Yeah, if it was uh, the death penalty, if you were to engage in a relationship outside of your marriage that it could potentially cost you and the other person their life, you would think twice about committing adultery, or at least you should. And the point that I'm trying to make here is because the threat that adultery posed to the covenant of marriage, it demanded life-threatening consequences. We need, to, we need to grasp that. This should elevate God's view of marriage and anything that poses a threat to the marital covenant. 
And so when someone wants to have an attorney, just go ahead and write down, well, he's just got some irreconcilable differences. This is the end of this relationship. They need to be warned. They need to see that, that, that this is a threat to the breaking of the covenant in God's eyes. And it needs to be considered with extreme caution. As we'll see in Mark 10, 11 and 12, Jesus will show how a divorce that goes against God's terms will only compound the sin problem, which leads us to, excuse me, the second truth and the second sub-point. God's view of divorce warns against compounding sin in remarriage. Look at verses 11 and 12. Here Jesus says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Here our Lord issues two warnings. One to husbands in verse 11, the other to wives. And it left nowhere to run. Jack Hughes writes, the scribes and Pharisees thought they were righteous, keepers of the law. So Jesus goes after the jugular. He mentions a sin that they cannot escape from, divorce leading to adultery. If you are worshiping idols, you can stop. If you take the Lord's name in vain, you can stop. If you break the Sabbath, steal, lie, murder, covet, you can stop. But if you have divorced your wife and married another or married a divorced person, you live in a perpetual state of adultery. You can't get out of it. If you try by divorcing again, you compound your sin, for you cannot remarry the first person. You're stuck in adultery, end quote. And this is absolutely ironic when we consider the context of this passage, when the Pharisees were the ones at the get-go who were coming to do what? To trap Jesus. And he does what he was so remarkable at. He completely turns the table. He's the one that's going to call checkmate. They have no place to move. They were gridlocked spiritually, and he was the only exit. Using an illustration, they were like Friday night traffic northbound on the 405. I mean, they were gridlocked. And that's actually, believe it or not, a good illustration for us to picture in mind because just about everyone's experienced that level of traffic where you're, you're, you're gridlocked and traffic is stopped and you're bumper to bumper. The, the equivalent of, of just saying, I'm going to divorce for any reason and take matters into your own hands is the equivalent of putting the gas on the car and driving through the spaces and banging cars as you try to get off the freeway. That's, that's a good picture to keep in mind. Not only are you going to cause damage to yourself, but you're going to cause damage to those around you. And we talked about some of those statistics, right, last week. That in the end, though there's one million divorces that take place every week, roughly there's, there's close to a dozen million people who are impacted. Jesus completely did away with the loopholes of the Mosaic divorce provision that they artificially created from Deuteronomy 24.1. This was absolutely radical, and it rocked the disciples' world as much as it did the Pharisees. In the parallel account in Matthew 19, 
The disciples' response indicates just how radical this was. Jesus teaching was teaching them, and this is, this is what they said to him. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. What were they ultimately saying? If the only ground for divorce was unfaithfulness, if none of the other, the other uh, suggestions by Rabbi Hillel are, are, are taken or can be taken into consideration, it was better to stay single. And you want to know what? They're exactly right. They are exactly right. That is the awesome, sacred, lofty view that Jesus was challenging them and everyone to have of the marital bond. And it's a challenge that remains unchanged today. If someone thinks that you can just head into the covenant of marriage thinking that if for some reason you might be discontent with your spouse down the line, that you can always just file for divorce, they don't understand. They don't understand the implications or, or the consequences. And that was the mindset, my friends, of Israel. And they were led to believe this. And they were led by the spiritual leaders of Israel to believe this. And I think we would all agree that in many ways this is the mindset of our culture in our day. And our responsibility is to make sure that the culture is not influencing the church, but rather the teaching of the church and the practice of the church, the testimony of the church is impacting and influencing the culture. Marriage by divine design is to be one of the strongest evangelism tools that we have on this side of the cross. Do we get that? Marriage is to be the believers, one of our strongest evangelism tools. Because the fidelity of marriage is upheld. Because the commitment and the love and the roles and everything by design, by divine designs, points to something that is against this world. Do we see that? That your marriage is a gospel reflection. Your marriage is a testimony. And if you're married in the room, you're feeling the same weight that I'm feeling with that right about now. Right? And we need to. It is to point people to Christ. It's to point them to the need for salvation. It is to connect them to the covenant that ultimately, that they so desperately need. The change of heart that they must have in order for a marriage to actually bring glory to God. And I shared this when we exalted God's view of marriage in last week's message. But there's still a third and final truth that we need to consider as Jesus challenges our view of divorce. First, we saw that God's view of divorce will cause many to question it. Second, we saw that God's view of divorce warns against compounding sin in remarriage. And third, God's view of divorce includes two concessions outside of Mark's gospel. The scriptures do give two concessions where divorce is allowed because of the hardness of men's hearts. And I got these listed 
hopefully they're in your outline, unrepentant adultery and unrepentant abandonment. And the scriptures are right there for you. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And we got to see what Jesus says here. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Then we find uh, 14 chapters later in Matthew 19, a very similar uh, uh, verse, Verse 9, 19.9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And these are commonly referred to as the two exception clauses in Matthew's gospel. And the word unchastity in Matthew 5.32 and immorality in Matthew 19.9, as the NASB has it, is the same Greek word. It's the the, the, the word porneia, which gets translated immorality. Same word where we get our English word pornography. It is used to, to describe immorality, sexual immorality, and it has a wide range of, of meanings and covers every kind of sexual immorality stemming from adultery to homosexuality to bestiality. Why didn't Jesus use this word which covered all sexual sin instead of the word for adultery? There was a word that just reflected adultery. We need to remember that Jesus was fulfilling the law of Moses. And he kept it perfectly. So whatever Jesus is advocating conforms to the law of Moses. And if you'll go to the... You don't need to turn there now, but at a later point, because the reference is there. If you end up going to Leviticus chapter 20, what you see is a, is, is a list of sexual immoralities that are, are spelled out. Homosexuality, bestiality, along with adultery, all of them warranted death. And so it makes sense that Jesus uses this blanket term to cover them all, since all would pose threats to the marital bond. We also know that Jesus was giving his own law system, which the apostles would later bring to the church through their writings. In the Great Commission, Jesus sends his followers out to teach his disciples all that he commanded, which is a reference to the law of Christ. So an intriguing question to ask is whether Jesus is teaching from the law of Moses when he mentions the exception clause, or is he stating his own law? I'll help you with that. We have already learned from Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22 that in the case of adultery, the guilty parties would be stoned to death, putting an end to the marriage. If you go through the Old Testament, there really isn't any place where divorce is permitted. The sin of divorce is merely regulated in Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1-4. This tells us that Jesus is giving regulations about divorce and remarriage that go beyond the law of Moses. What he is teaching is part of the law of Christ, not Moses. If immorality includes adultery and adultery includes death, 
then why doesn't Jesus advocate the death penalty? Jesus recognizes the fact that he is living in a different situation than the Israelites were when they were given the law of Moses. Is, is, question for you, is Israel currently under their own jurisdiction right now? No, they're not. They're under Roman rule. They're under Roman governance. They just couldn't start, they couldn't just kill people, kill uh, according to even what the, the law prescribed. It was a game changer. And Jesus understands the times. And he also wants, you know, for, for, for this transition to be seen through the law of Christ because he doesn't want believers in the church stoning people in the future for various sins. We see further evidence of this in John chapter 8 when the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring an adulterous woman to Jesus. And they say, according to the law, she's supposed to be stoned to death. Jesus, what do you say is supposed to happen in this situation? And we all know how that story ends. Jesus draws on the ground and he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And we know what happens. It says this, I love it. It says that one by one, the scribes and the Pharisees started leaving, starting with the eldest. See? Wisdom prevailed. They, they knew. They, they knew even the liability of their own teaching. They, 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 started, they started walking away one by one, and Jesus is left with this woman. And he says to her, woman, does not anyone condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. He says, nor do I. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. But what happens if an adulterer does choose to keep on sinning and to live out in an adulterous relationship? Perhaps their spouse is even willing to forgive the act of adultery if they were willing to repent, yet the adulterer considers themselves done with the marriage. You cannot enact the death penalty. What can you do? The closest thing is divorce, which like death, causes a separation. Death breaks the marriage covenant as the Apostle Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. And we're going to be studying this very soon in our care groups. Divorce breaks the marriage covenant legally and physically. And here is where some take two different views when it comes to remarriage. And I want to help you to see this, right? There were the, those different views, the, two, the last two views. Some believe that divorce does not dissolve the spiritual union created by God, and as a result, the person is free from their marriage, but they are not permitted to remarry. They believe that that's what the Scriptures teach. While others believe that divorce breaks the marriage covenant legally, physically, and spiritually, and that the believer is again permitted to remarry. And so our elder team, we've already had some uh, good preliminary discussions, you know, just even talking about this because there's some practical implications that come with divorce. Would we as an elder team 
be willing to remarry someone in our church who was divorced. Would you? I mean, there's a lot of things to take into consideration, and we're sensing that. Serious stuff. Can a divorced person serve as a pastor, elder, or deacon? Was there divorce as a believer or an unbeliever? What were the grounds? And as you can imagine, there are dozens and dozens of factors to consider. Another shepherding factor is pornography. Is looking at pornographic pictures grounds for divorce? Jesus says in Matthew 5.28 that if you look at someone with lust, you are committing adultery. Is this grounds for divorce? Have to think about that one. Since the Bible doesn't uh, give um, or, or address modern technology, we need to do careful exegesis and explain what the Scriptures say. Typically, exegesis points to physical acts of adultery. But let me just tell you, my friends, we are living in a time where the threshold is being pushed even greater and greater as it relates to the inventors of evil, right? And there's crazy stuff. There's crazy stuff. And I I, I don't have to tell you. You you know there's crazy stuff in this world that push the the threshold. And men, this is another reason why you do not want to miss the teaching by Pastor Bobby Scott when he comes and teaches on sexual purity on November 19th. Your sexual purity in many ways will determine the level of protection of your marriage. We need to see that. We need to own that. Well, there's one more concession for divorce that the Apostle Paul discloses, not Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. And I want to invite you to turn there so you can see this one as well. The first was unrepentant adultery. The second is unrepentant abandonment. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16. And there's a lot to cover here. So what I've opted to do as we read it, I'm just going to go ahead and provide commentary as we go through. This is what it says, starting in verse 10. Paul wrote, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave. Okay, Leave here is a reference to divorce. It's not talking about her leaving on vacation or leaving you know, on a girl's night out. This is in a divorce context. We're going to see that uh, reinforced in, the, in verse 11. She's not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. Stop here for a moment. You'll notice that Paul does what? He sums up Jesus' teaching perfectly in the Gospels. Do not divorce, and if you do sin and divorce, do not remarry, for it leads to adultery. Verse 12, but I say, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. And so the reason why Paul says this is that he's no longer quoting and and referencing the direct teaching of Jesus in the Gospels, but he's giving authoritative apostolic instruction here, and, and this is what God's apostle says, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. 
And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. In other words, don't think that because you're a believer or maybe you became a believer, you're both unbelievers to start with, and you became a believer that all of a sudden that you're to divorce your husband or wife just because they're an unbeliever. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the believing wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. If a believer says, or excuse me, if a believer stays married to their unbelieving spouse, this is what Paul is ultimately saying. You get to continue to be a witness to them as a believer. You're not only a witness to them, but you're a witness to your children as well. Verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Brother or sister, this is a reference to the, the, the Christian is no longer under bondage. If the unbeliever says, I'm out of here, I'm done with this marriage, I ain't ever coming back, or maybe they even go off with their adulterous relationship and marry that person, and, and they say they're, they're completely done, Paul gives a concession. Let them leave. Verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? God doesn't expect a believer bound to a person who hates Christ, who has abandoned them completely, unrepentantly, and declare that they're never coming back. If that believer wants out, is led to take a path out, they have a concession. And this is it. These are the concessions. If we can go back to the gridlock example on the freeway, rather than taking matters into your own hands and just <coughs> crunching cars on the way out, there's actually two concessions, two off-ramps. But you have a choice. You have a choice to make, believer, those, those are options, right? When we're going down the freeway, we have the option to get off, and I want to make sure that I feature that. You have an option if you're in a state of spiritual gridlock with a spouse who has chosen to live in the state of unrepentant adultery or unrepentant abandonment. But you don't necessarily have to take it. And many, by the grace of God, and this is, these are powerful testimonies, there are powerful testimonies. There are many, by the grace of God, who, who have been deserted. And they've had spouses who have lived in adulterous relationships for an extended period of time. And they loved them so much that they kept praying for them. And there was a willingness on their part, absolutely divine, absolutely the power of God working through the heart of a believer to do that. But they've done it in marriages that were hanging on by, I'm not kidding you, that is the power of God seen through prayer and the gospel but then if they go off and they marry another person there, there, there is no restoration your life is going to have to go on and God does provide concessions the grace of God does provide 
concessions. There are situations when it's clear that all hope for restoration is lost. I also want to share my personal conviction. When a believer gets a divorce through one of these two concessions provided in the Scriptures, I believe and I, I hold to the position that that person is free to remarry another believer. I believe that that's what the, the Scriptures reflect. Is it ideal? Of course not. But God in His mercy, I believe, does allow for remarriage in these two cases as a last resort. And before I close, I want to have a very important shepherding moment for everyone who can hear the sound of my voice. Jesus mentions this fixed state of sin so that the Pharisees and scribes would see their sin and their need for a Savior. And the point of the text is that everyone is a sinner and that Jesus saves even those who are fixed into a permanent state of sin. Like marrying a divorced person who did not have biblical grounds for divorce. And some of you in this room are divorced or have been divorced. Some of you have been divorced before Christ. Some may have been divorced after you came to Christ. As young believers or possibly as older believers, you know the part that you played. The times that you failed to love your spouse unconditionally. Maybe you were even willing to un, you, you weren't willing to offer forgiveness. You were unforgiving. And maybe right now you're convicted and the Lord has helped you to see that you, you made a wrong decision. Maybe you even got remarried. Can I tell you something? You need to hear this. God's grace is sufficient for you. You do not commit the unforgivable sin. Jesus died for that sin too. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It's not. There is and will always be forgiveness in Christ. Jesus saves even adulterers. And the truth be told that if we really are a student of the Scriptures and we look at God's Word, we begin to see that at the heart level how we're all adulterers at heart. And Jesus has challenged all of our hearts in great measure with God's view of divorce. And may we walk away from this passage embracing and exalting God's design for marriage and do all that we can to protect it. J.C. Rao concludes by sharing this. Happy are they who in the matter of marriage observe three rules. The first is to marry only in the Lord and after prayer for God's approval and blessing. The second is not to expect too much from their partners and to remember that marriage is, after all, the union of two sinners and not of two angels. The third rule is to strive first and foremost for one another's sanctification. The more holy married people are, the happier they are. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we bow our heads thanking you for um, this study in your word. 
I pray, Father, that um, just as we exalted uh, what your word teaches, that we have seen with, with clarity and have gained a greater understanding. I confess even my own inadequacies and understand while, why uh, many pastors have written books about it because it's just so comprehensive. It's, it's impossible to cover every single aspect, every single scenario. But as it relates to the clear view that we have, that can be, that can be clearly seen and understood. I pray for our church, and as we have the opportunity during second hour to pray for the marriages in our church, that you would allow the series that we've heard to be a source of great, great comfort and great encouragement and great challenge. May we not lose sight of the deceitfulness of sin. May we always be mindful of the ways that this world is challenging us to compromise, compromise, And we confess through our sinful nature that there have been ways in which we've compromised. And I pray, Father, that if there's any divorced person that's here today that has just been struggling with the issue, that you would provide freedom for them in Christ and the gospel as they confess their sin to you. Allow them to cry out to you. And if there's any things that they need to do or anything that they need to own and talk to a past spouse or a past relationship, that they would do that that they would do that and that you would be magnified in that process. And Father, as we close our time, we pray for those who have just recently gotten married or haven't been married for very long, that you would continue to help them to prioritize the gospel and their relationship. That they would, in, in every way, cling to the roles that you have for them, that husbands would love their wives, just as Christ loved the church and that wives would submit to their husbands just as the church submits to Christ. And we have that ultimate example in him who was the perfect, perfect example of love and submission. We thank you that you have allowed us to see what it looks like. We know Christ is the great example. He's the cornerstone of the church and we need to keep our eyes fixed on him and you will guide us faithfully through anything that we face if we will do just that help us to stay focused on him this week so that we can magnify you in jesus name we pray amen